0: Welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast series brought to you by your friends at Ozark Coding Alliance. Discussing your life as a medical coder, offering coding tips and advice for coding students and professionals. Join us every Wednesday Welcome to the Life as a Coder podcast. We are live today. This is Jennifer McNamara. I am your host. And of course, our program is brought to you from your friends at Ozark Coding Alliance. And, um, of course, now we are known as Ozark Institute. Maybe you have seen the changes. So we hope you're going to enjoy all the content that we're going to bring uh, for you in the coming year. Our goal, as always, is to bring you timely industry topics in the field of health information management. And of course, we want to, of course, have you hit that subscribe button or follow us wherever you get your podcasts. We are live today, but you also will be able to listen uh, to this podcast on your favorite podcast station. Our disclaimer, as always, is that our podcast is not to be taken as legal or professional advice. It, of course, is based on our years of experience in the coding and billing industry. And our goal is to share with you what we've learned and why we love this industry. And I know we have some really uh, faithful listeners, and we want to thank you for listening today. We're so, so grateful that you have uh, chosen to listen to the Life as a Coder podcast um, for these last four seasons, and we know that you're going to continue to enjoy. What we have to um, bring to your attention. So, um, we hope that you're going to, of course, listen uh, today and enjoy this topic on knowing your EOB and denial codes. So, the reason I wanted to talk about this today is because I get a lot of questions, um, not only from our clients, uh, but also from new coders who, of course, get certified and they go out into the field. And then, of course, they have, of course, questions about, okay, I'm I've learned how to code, I'm in the real world now, and I don't understand um, all of these ins and outs of the insurance and how to understand denials when I have to fix these denials. So you have to know, right, if it's, of course, specific to patient data, and you also have to know, of course, if it's specific to a coding issue, right? So we want to make sure we understand um, all the ins and outs of that. So I just going to briefly talk today. Really, I mean, maybe you're a patient. Maybe you're listening. You're not really a coder, but you just like listening to our podcast to learn. So if you're a patient, um, we're all patients, right? But if you are someone who just wants to get to know your explanation of benefits a little bit better, um, or if you are learning billing or coding or both, it's really a good idea to get an overview, right, of how you should interpret what's on your EOB um, or how to explain it to a patient or uh, someone else if you have to explain a denial. So it's always going to have the basic information, right? It's going to have the subscriber information to make sure we have the right patient, right? It's going to give us uh, the amount that was billed. It's going to give us amount that was paid, if any. Sometimes we don't get payments, Right. Um, it's going to of course give us those columns we're going to see the amount that was billed of course we know providers can charge their fee right but when they go into a contract or they come into a position where they're contracted with that insurance company they come into this uh, understanding that they know that they can only be reimbursed based on that insurance company's contractual agreement so let's say they charge four thousand dollars for a service Provider um, bills that on that claim, and then it comes back, the EOB says, the explanation benefit says that, yes, you billed $4,000, but our contract says you can only get reimbursed, let's say, $1,500 of that. That's quite the cut, right? So then you have what's called the contractual or the write-off amount, the adjustment, whatever you want to call it, different um, explanation benefits word it maybe a little bit differently, but that's the amount you have to adjust off on the claim in your system so that way if there's anything left over that is owed by the patient that will be reflected in their statement so there is another column that says of course the other patient responsibility or your payment right so it'll say deductible copay, coinsurance. sometimes it's worded differently but basically it's by the policy right the patient has a policy and that tells them, of course, that, well, they should understand, right? They should understand that for certain services, they have a deductible, which means what? That means that they have a certain amount per calendar year. That they have to meet. Um, they have to pay that um, for through different services, of course, before they are eligible for payment by their insurance. So when you sign up for an insurance, you look at all those things, right? You look, okay, i know for me like i'm personally i'm not sick very often of course last year i had that injury so i was grateful i met my deductible i had surgery and all kinds of visits so that was good for me to have that met but maybe you work for an employer and their deductible plans um, are maybe a little bit less in premium so you're going to pay less out of pocket every paycheck to get that so maybe to you that's beneficial you want to have that lower payment per month coming out of your account and you understand that means you're going to have maybe a higher deductible. You're going to have to meet maybe five, 10000 a year before they're going to start paying out anything. And then once you do, you have, of course, your co-insurance or copay. So maybe you go to the doctor's office. You see a primary care physician, PCP, PCP or a specialist, right? So you see the specialist. You're going to have me a higher copay to pay that physician. And all of their services, the, the, the visit that day is covered after you pay that copay. But let's say, for instance, you have an X-ray done. You have a, maybe they send you to get an MRI, or maybe they do some kind of test in the office. Maybe you're thinking, "Well, I paid my copay, so I'm, that's all I have to pay." Well, that is something that you should be aware of. Um, you should know your policy. Now, myself, you know, in, uh, in my fields and through the, my years, I've always been that person that, even though I understand it is the patient responsibility to know their policy nine times out of ten a lot of people just they get busy they they get their insurance and they don't read the fine print so a lot of patients don't really know their policy so good customer service right we want to take that time in the office and explain that to them before the services are rendered if possible Um, you know sometimes that isn't possible sometimes you know you go into the office the doctor's talking to you they say well that we think that we need to take care of this today let's do this this and this And maybe you're just thinking, okay, I need this. I'm going to go ahead and do it. And you don't think about the financial ramifications of going ahead with it without asking questions. So if you're a patient, if you're a physician, you're a practice manager, hopefully you can all come to an agreement on processes that can effectively improve that communication with your patients and your practice. But let's say, for instance, yes, you go ahead and do it. You get a bill. Hopefully that office staff is trained well enough, the office manager, the financial counselor, is trained well enough, they can explain that to the patient in a way they can understand. So yes, you paid your copay, but this service specifically is outside of that guideline or that coverage for the copay. That covers your visit, right? It um, doesn't cover a certain things. So you may get a bill You may, and it's a co-insurance. So maybe it, they're going to apply 20% of that service to your responsibility as the patient. And then they're going to say the provider gets paid this much, 80%, right? So you have that. So we need to understand those things. And whenever you're quoting a patient, maybe you're scheduling surgery, you also have to know all those things. You need to know how much deductible is left. You need to know, of course, the coinsurance amount. What, are their, what is their responsibility? Let's say, for instance, they do meet their deductible. Let's say, for instance, they've met um, half of the deductible. So you take that the rest that's remaining, you add that to the total amount you're going to charge them for the upfront payment right and then of course you take the difference and you you do the co-insurance for that now this is all manual process that a lot of us for years have done but believe it or not there are softwares there are great tools out there that can simplify the process and can help you with that and we will be of course talking more about those tools in the future as we, of course, promote those, because we have some great tools that we can offer um, to practices that we wanna, of course, talk about. So stay tuned for that in a later episode. Then, of course, you have the amount that's covered. That's the amount they're gonna pay. You're gonna see your payment amount. So you may see if you're a patient, it'll look differently than the provider, right? So as a provider, let's say, for instance, you're out of network and your patient says, hey, I got this check in the mail. They may, of course, cash it, or they may say, I don't know what it's for. Chances are it's your check because you're out of network. They send the check to the patient. So that's why it's so important to be in network a lot of times or, you know, to look at that because it could affect your reimbursement. So we're not here to talk about that specifically, but that is something that can affect your bottom line. So looking at, are you in network with certain insurances? Does your patient understand the ramifications of that? Now, um, in a previous episode, we did talk about the no surprise billing rule when it comes out of network services. So stay tuned for more information as we get closer um, to 2021, 22 and in the new year, we'll be talking more about that. So now that we understand basically the structure of the EOB, we know, of course, here's the patient information, the charges, the adjustment, the coinsurance deductible and the payment. What happens though when we get a zero payment? Right, that's no fun. Nobody wants to get a, a zero payment, but there are times where you see a zero payment. Now, sometimes it could be just because you know there is an issue, the patient didn't give us enough information, so maybe they have a coordination of benefits issue to, to iron out. That's not our fault, of course. We assume the patient, uh, when they come to us has told us everything that they're, both their insurances know about each other, right? So sometimes you have different insurances or maybe you leave one employer and go to the next and you sign up for the insurance and that employer gives you that policy, says this is your effective date. You start seeing the doctor, but you don't fill out that form or go online and tell that uh, insurance payer, yes, I have this coverage. I don't have anything else. So they know you have nothing else. So sometimes they'll do a dead stop and they won't even pay a claim until you do that. So there's usually denial codes on there um, that insurance will identify. Uh, And though sometimes it'll it'll say the patient's responsible or it'll say additional information is requested by the patient. So that's your trigger, right? You know, it's not your fault. (laughs) It's something that you have to contact the patient about, right? Um, Then there's issues with coding, which is what I want to talk about because a lot of times when you go into reimbursement, billing, maybe you start out as a receptionist, you don't know all those things yet. You didn't go to school yet for coding. You don't know much about it. You just got a job as a receptionist in a medical office. They're starting to tell you, okay, can you figure this out for me? I need to figure this out. Why are we not getting paid? And so then you're digging through and you're trying to figure it out and you don't know why you're just learning to build, Right. But then you, of course, maybe start out your career as a coder. You're on the other side of things. You know, the coding guidelines, you know how to code a surgery, you know how to code an EM. you know about modifiers, right? But then you decide, okay, I'm gonna do both. Like myself, like I was a biller before I was a coder. So I've done both in my life. I started out looking at claims and trying to figure out what was going on. And then I went into being a coder. And then I, of course, understood all the ins and outs of, okay, yes, I'm missing a modifier. I'm looking at the charges. What modifier could possibly be appropriate in this instance? But remember, as a coder, you can't be stuck in your box. You have to learn more about individual payer modifiers because specifically, uh, there are certain modifiers that are only specific to a payer. Uh, there's modifiers that may not be an EMR system because they're not specifically in your CPT codebook. So you may have to add certain modifiers in your in your, I'm sorry, your practice management system um, that are applicable to payers. Now our local Medicaid in Arkansas has their own specific modifiers for things. So if a patient, of course, is seen in the outpatient hospital and we have to bill us, they have their own specific, you know, alphanumeric code that we have to bill for outpatient consult in the hospital um, that we have to, of course, bill for. And then they have the specific modifiers that begin with the letter U. Those modifiers are not in my CPT code book, and they're not in my hics level two code book. So I have to know those things. And then there is, you know, specific modifiers for specific specialties, right? So you're going to have to know those things. Now, hopefully, if you're coding, you're billing, you know the definition of, you know different modifiers, what they're used for. So you might get a, uh, an actual denial code at the bottom of your EOB. It's going to tell you the definition of those denial codes. So you aren't lost, you aren't left without understanding. But maybe you're reading that definition and you still have a question. You don't understand what that interp- how to interpret that. I'm going to give you some examples. So there is a code C O four. Uh, For some payers, this, of course, indicates the procedure is inconsistent with the modifier used or the required modifier is missing for adjudication. In my world in orthopedics, this could happen because we left off an RT or an LT or a 50. If you bill a procedure code that is in description, laterally specific, or it's a right or a left leg, and you know you have to have that, or maybe your diagnosis says right knee osteoarthritis, and you're billing, of course, in total knee replacement, but you're missing that modifier on the procedure. They don't know, for instance, if you're, maybe they're thinking, okay, was it really the right or the left? Just because your diagnosis says that doesn't mean they can believe you. They need to know that, want to confirm that you really did this procedure on the right knee. And that's what they want to confirm, right? Uh, maybe it's specific to um, a laboratory procedure. There are some procedures, some lab codes that require the QW modifier to say that it's CLIA waived, right? Um, and then, of course, we have issues with prior authorization. Now, we know as coders, a lot of times that's not our world. We, of course, deal with things. We build the procedure out. Maybe somebody else in the office it's their responsibility to get prior authorization. But maybe as a coder in the office, we're asked to give them potential codes they can use to get prior authorization. Things are fluid in the healthcare office. They're constantly moving. Things are constantly changing, right? You're not in the back office. You're not the medical assistant. You're not the intake person. You don't know what's going on in that room, right? So you don't know if they're deciding to order this procedure. If they don't communicate that with you, you're not going to know, okay, I have my list of uh, procedures here. I know this insurance requires authorization, but nobody told me that they were going to do this procedure. gets done, and then we're out of um. You know, we can't get it paid, right? We have no recourse, especially if the if the insurance doesn't allow you to do retro authorization. So you need to be sure that you have those policies in place. That's an issue that can happen. And it's a lot of times it's a dead stop. You're not going to be able to get paid for that. You write off thousands and thousands of dollars every year because of authorization issues. And guess what? We have a tool for that as well, which we'll be talking about in future episodes. So stay tuned. And then of course we have the lovely phrase medical necessity right so we have non-covered services that are deemed of course not medically necessary by the payer so then of course we have to understand okay we talk to our physician and i've worked with physicians for 20 years you know i understand where they're coming from i understand their world they think you know they think it's medically necessary they have to do this procedure Because they need to find out, right, what's wrong with the patient. To them, that's medically necessary. But to a payer, they have certain standards they develop based on criteria they have read by organizations like the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery, for instance. The AMA panels, they get together um, and they read things and they look up things. They go to these, um, you know, panels and they communicate with these organizations. And that's where they get their information a lot of times. I'm not going to say all the time. That's a lot of times where that information comes on where they consider things medically necessary. So to a physician, a trained physician, they may differ on their understanding or their interpretation of medical necessity. But when we're billing an insurance, we're not billing the patient directly. We have to go by what the insurance says is medically necessary if we're going to expect payment. So that's why we want to be proactive, right? Not reactive. Of course, we do have to be reactive at times in appeal. But to avoid these denials, we really need to make sure that we look at those LCD policies, right? Those local coverage determination policies. We understand those. Um, obviously, we wouldn't treat a patient for a right knee replacement because they have left knee arth- osteoarthritis. We wouldn't do, um, you know, inject, um, you know, a um, joint injection right into the the wrong joint and then try to bill for the opposite joint. That wouldn't make sense, right? So, is there a medical necessity for this? It happens a lot with cosmetic procedures. So, I work in the plastics world uh, with a, one of our clients, and of course, we have to know is there a medical necessity for this procedure. So, we have to look up coverage policies. And I know you just want to get in there, you want to read the operative, you want to code it and bill it and get paid. That's in a dream world, right? A lot of times, we have to actually get our hands dirty, get out our um, our payer policies, get on those websites. Now, most of your Blue Cross carriers, websites around the country, they have some really great coverage policy lookup tools, which are great. You can type in the procedure code. It'll tell you if there's a policy that exists and you read the policy. You look at the covered indications and the non-covered indications. You look at the date that policy was revised. You know, maybe your data service is from last year. So you have to look at what the coverage guidelines were then. And then maybe you look at the current ones to see what's changed if you're coding and billing for a current service. So you want to make sure you read all of those those uh, fine print right at the bottom of the coverage policy. A lot of times they'll tell you the, the codes that are applicable, but usually you're going to find, you know, guideline criteria. So for us, for instance, a lot of insurances don't pay for gender dysphoria um, for gender reassignment surgery for plastics. Um, so if we're trying to do a, a female top surgery. We have to, of course, know that this technically by coding standards is a mastectomy that we're moving the breast. But it's for gender dysphoria. And so we have to look at all the guidelines. Some of these patients have to actually go to a psychologist, psychiatrist. They have to get that, um, that therapy, that treatment plan. And they have to have that written documentation from that physician sent to the plastic surgeon to confirm, yes, and they qualify for this service. That's just an example. We see it a lot with cosmetics. But there are other areas of coding and billing where this can come into play with medical necessity, right? Um, or maybe we see CO-97. I've seen CO-97 all the time. Payment was adjusted because the benefit is included in the payment for another service. What does that mean? Well, that means it's bundled, guys. That means that they're already paying for this service in the payment allowance for the the main procedure. Now, I'm going to talk in a little bit about the NCCI manual, um, and Medicare has a great great, um, you know, booklet that we'll be adding to our show notes that talks about um, the NCCI manual, it talks about procedure to procedure edits, the P2P edits, edits, and that will tell you, of course, you have your column one code, your column two code, and if you don't have a leg to stand on, if you don't have a modifier to bypass that edit, then you can't build that second code. Now, that's why it says resubmit the claim with an appropriate modifier or accept the adjustment. So do you have an appropriate modifier? Most of the time, the appropriate modifier is 59 or your X modifiers, right? For Medicare, they of course split out the definition of that 59 in those X's. So what we want to talk about is of course, do you have that documentation to support the use of that? Do you have in that second code, the one that's bundled, if you're gonna do it, do you have documentation to support it? Was a separate site, a separate structure, right? Um, according to that insurance definition of, you know, Medicare has their own definition, right, of what they consider a separate contiguous site, right? And is it a separate encounter? Um, Is it basically a separate lesion? Um, Do you have different items there that can, a separate incision, right? So when I first started coding for orthopedics, I would have to look for those things. And when I say the doctor opened them up, I would have to look for specific wording. Is there a separate lesion that was done, a separate incision? Did he take That scalpel or whatever, and he go over here and do another incision somewhere else and start a new, technically a new procedure. That is the definition or one of the components, right, of a 59 modifier. So if you don't have that and you can't justify that, don't build the code, it's going to deny. Now, let's say it does still deny. You have maybe appeal rights because you have documentation to support that. At this point in time, they have not requested records. So they don't know for sure if your 59 is appropriate maybe they're going to request those records maybe they're not but they're going to deny it the only way for you to get them to understand right that your 59 modifier or your x modifier is appropriate is to send them that appeal letter or that reconsideration whatever step process the insurance wants some of them want you to do um, maybe a reconsideration and then an appeal and the second level appeal however you do that uh, but make sure you understand that um you don't want to just accept the denial because you may have appropriate documentation they don't know about yet, right? And so you're going to write your appeal letter, your reconsideration, you're going to be very descriptive, tell them in the op note you're sending, where specifically, you know, the sentence that shows the medical necessity, so they can locate it quickly. It's in paragraph two, this is sentence number three, (laughs) whatever you want to say it, so they can quickly identify what you're talking about. They have a lot of denials, a lot of claims to go through a lot of appeals. They need to know from that information you are giving them how to quickly identify where is the medical necessity so they can review it and potentially pay your claim. And for those of you out there who have been successful at that, I have one of my coders um, on my team, and she is very successful um, at getting appeals paid and reconsiderations because she doesn't just take the denial and just move on. We take the time, we do our research, we do that work, we go above and beyond, and we get that money for our provider. That's our job, right? So we do that. So just make sure you're following that NCCI manual if your payer, of course, follows Medicare. Now they may have their own interpretation of a bundle. So maybe they don't necessarily agree with maybe the NCCI manual, Medicare's National Correct Coded Initiative, but maybe they do have their own criteria for something being bundled. So Maybe you don't know about it, and that's, you know, it's not the end of the world. You know, we can't know everything all the time. We're going to learn as much as we can. We're going to take in this information. We're going to learn from our mistakes, right? That's how I learned, guys. I mean, I made a lot of mistakes over the last 20 years. Trial and error. But once I learned that error, I made a note, um, added it to my list of things to remember, and then hopefully in the future, I can remember not to make that mistake. So you're going to make mistakes. You're going to have errors. You're going to submit something that's not right. You're going to figure out why it's wrong you're going to fix it send it back and then you're going to hopefully get your payment so not the end of the world but the more we can of course um learn about these things and prevent these errors the quicker the money comes in right or then of course we i talked earlier right about the ncci manual so sometimes it says the diagnosis is not covered so that's your trigger you use a diagnosis code that is not covered by the lcd policy not covered by that insurance for that procedure So maybe you then now have to get out and do some research, print out that LCD policy, show it to your physician, give them some education. You know, for this procedure, you know, it would be worth your time to review these codes. This is these are the appropriate diagnosis codes or reasons the insurance will allow you to do this procedure in the future. Right. Um, And then my favorite happens all the time because we sometimes don't know what's happening in the intake. Or maybe the patient is not really a new patient, right? Maybe they come in, they're not really new, but they have, maybe they've been there in the last three years, or maybe they've seen another physician of the same specialty in the last three years, and we don't know about it, right? So we build a new patient visit, comes back, new patient um, qualifications were not met, resubmit the claim with an established visit, right? So we have to, of course, do that, research that, um, and figure out if that's true or not. So that's something to keep in mind. You know, if a patient isn't new unless they have seen um if they, unless they haven't seen a physician of the same specialty um, or subspecialty or in the same group practice any of those reasons in the last 3 years, right? That's how we understand that. Now, another one that may be um, not as familiar to some, maybe they're not covered by this payer or contractor. So maybe you have to send the claim to the correct payer or contractor. So this happens sometimes with Medicare. Um, you send a claim to Medicare. Maybe the patient didn't inform you they had a replacement plan. Maybe you didn't run eligibility. You were just busy that day. Running eligibility, asking patients for their current insurance cards regularly. You know, if they were just seen two days ago, you know, and they're coming back again, hopefully they've given you the correct one the first time. But if it's been six months, several months later, they could have changed jobs. They could have changed, you know, insurance. So definitely ask them for if they have any updated insurance cards. Make it part of your spiel (laughs) that you ask them when they check into the office, right? Ask them those questions. Do that. Run that eligibility. Run that two days before their visit. Every patient should have eligibility ran one or two days, even the day of their visit. Because sometimes, especially with Medicaid plans, a lot of state Medicaid plans, things change daily on a dime. So you want to make sure and check that regularly. That will tell you whether or not you've built the right one. Now, on on Arkansas, like I know back when the Obamacare happened, right, we had these plans. They were the the Medicaid plans, but they were um, basically replacements, right? So you had these um, plans. Maybe Blue Cross had their own version. You had Ambetter and Qual Choice in Arkansas. Maybe in your state you have something different. They call it something different. But they are basically, patient has Medicaid, they have this alternative marketplace plan, right? So you're going to have to know that, and usually the eligibility will tell you if they're if they're part of that marketplace or that additional plan. And a lot of times, patients don't realize they just say Medicaid, and they don't realize that it's not really that. Especially where you have to bill it right; you can't just bill Medicaid. You have to bill that payer. So we had our own marketplace, Blue Cross plans, like I said, and Better. Maybe in the, in another state, it's called something different. But you have to know that you send a claim out; it's going to come back. And you know, I had in this situation with our with our practice here. That they, the previous office manager did not check, never checked. She saw the denial and just let it go and didn't do anything about it. And the problem the whole time was she was trying to build Medicaid instead of looking in the eligibility. And it was really a blue cross. So a year passes and it hits timely filing and you can't do anything about it. All because we didn't do investigation. We didn't look deeper into why we kept billing Medicaid and it kept denying. There had to be a reason, right? Investigate. Do that research. Make sure you understand that denial, right? And then, of course, um, we have just the basic ones, right? The contractual adjustment codes, the deductible amount. Those are things that are standard on every EOB. Um, They're not really going to be a denial code necessarily, um, but it's just basically going to tell you you're not getting paid because the patient hasn't met the deductible, so we're not paying you anything. You're going to have to collect it from the patient. That's what that means. So a zero payment that isn't a true denial may just mean that you're not getting paid from us, but we're going to expect you bill the patient to collect your uh, fee for the service. So those are some things to keep in mind when you're looking at um, different denials. These are things that you can look at um, you know, of course, I mentioned the timely filing thing. Be very cautious on this, guys, because um, United Healthcare is our favorite, right? 90 days, guys, uh, 90 days to submit a claim before it hits timely. So if you're not credentialed with a provider, if your provider is not credentialed with the insurance and you're seeing the patient and they have United Healthcare, just know if you don't get that claim out, whether it's out of network or not, you're not going to get paid anything. Um, some some of course will allow you six months you know some payers have up to a year to send the claim so just get it out you guys just get the claim out because you want that clock to start on at least getting it out if they receive the claim but now you have a little more time now let's say for instance you have to resubmit it for an error or something maybe it comes back hopefully you've submitted it correctly on coding and billing purposes but get the claim out as quickly as possible um, because you don't want to hit that timeline now i understand there are Situations where you're waiting on your physician to sign the document. You can't send a claim unless it's finalized, unless the documentation is complete, right? So that's why as an office manager, a director, um, office staff, really keep on that and make sure that you look at your facility's policy. Educate your physician. The policy here is that we have to have these signed off within 72 hours, 48 hours, 24 hours. What is your policy? Get those claims out as quickly as possible. The further, the longer you wait, the longer um, it's going to take to get that out. And then, of course, you could hit that. Now, I really hope you're not having any claims not go out because of documentation or from signature from your physician in, in 90 days. We really hope that, because you imagine waiting 90 days? And then, how is the physician going to remember exactly what happened that day? It gets further, further away. It gets harder and harder to guarantee that it's accurate information, right? So those are things. So know your insurances. There are other insurances besides United Healthcare that have 90-day filing limits. There are some that will let you bill it 180 days. You know, six months. Like I said, you're just going to be careful of that. So be aware of those denials um, and and reasons to be proactive. Um, and I think it's also just really good to get out on your insurance policy, your payers, and look at their denial codes. They usually have um, in their in their coverage policies, I'm sorry, in their policies for physicians, they have information out there on their billing um, policies on how to submit claims. They do have some denial codes and what they mean. Now, I told you I would talk a little bit about the National Correct Coding Initiative. And Medicare has a great tool. I love this. And it just really breaks up everything. It tells you what it is. So I'm gonna read you this from the uh, Medicare NCCI um, lookup tool. So it promotes national correct coding methodologies to control improper coding leading to inappropriate payment. So of course, they're going to use the policies that are in place. So they do go and base this off of the AMA's, um, you know, guidelines in the CPT current procedural terminology. They look at national and local policies and edits. They look Coding guidelines that have been developed by national societies, like I mentioned, right? So, when I said national societies, I'm thinking like your National like Academy of Orthopedics, you have your Plastic Surgery Association, Pediatrics, Cardiovascular, all of your specialties have their own societies. So, they look at those things and they look at standard medical and surgical practices and current coding practices. They look at all of those things when they're coming up with these edits. So, you'll need to review those. Now, You have the PTP edits, the procedure-to-procedure edits for practitioners. And then you have the procedure-to-procedure edits for hospitals. So make sure you're looking at the right files. Then you have what's called MUEs, medically unlikely edits. So this basically says what they feel is unlikely you're going to do this procedure this many times in one day. So they have a limit there. So I know our podiatrists sometimes get this and it's no fun, right? You have 10 toes and they're only paying for six or eight, right? So you're gonna have to do two for free. <laughs> so I know sometimes that can be um, a headache for you podiatrists or those that you did the digits. Um, but just just be aware, this is the policy. If you're billing this insurance, you gotta go by their guidelines. Billing the patient, that's another story, right? They don't have insurance, they're paying out of pocket. <laughs> um, it has information on add-on codes. There's things like that in there. Um, and there is, of course, direct instructions on how to locate the tables in the manual. Super easy. They can tell you exactly where to go. So I'm going to put this uh, booklet in our show notes. I think every biller, every coder needs to read this and needs to be familiar with this. Now, I know that a lot of times we just look at our encoders, right, to tell us whether things are bundled. But if you don't have an encoder, did you know you can get the same information from Medicare's website? Same information. It's in a spreadsheet format, it's in a table, but it's still the same format. So if you're not paying for an encoder, please, please, please use those procedure to procedure edit files. That's where the information comes from. That's where that those bundles come from because um, they're based on Medicare and maybe other payer indications, but make sure you're looking at those procedure to procedure edits for your current calendar year and make sure you're looking at those specific uh, code ranges that you need, because they're built, they're built out by code range. So how to use them? Well, as I mentioned, we have our column one and our column two codes, right? So we have the column one code, that's the payable code. That's the 100% payable code, right? That's your first code. But then you have this other code in the second column. They're saying, if you're gonna build these together, you can't build this procedure two column, column two code without a modifier. It's not payable. So remember that. So maybe you have a mutually exclusive Um, repair of an organ, maybe. And this is an example from the booklet that you'll be able to read Um, that can be performed on two different methods. One method can be chosen to repair the organ. A second example is a service that can be reported as an initial service or a subsequent service. So those are things that might be considered, you know, uh, mutually exclusive. um, And you wouldn't of course report them together. Now, um, when it's reimbursable is when it tells you right you have that modifier column right so in that modifier column that's the kicker and they tell you um, in those indicators the modifier indicators they tell you what the zero means the one and the nine right so for the modifier zero you can't use a modifier to bypass that edit one means it's allowed and nine mean it's not applicable so there's no need to put a modifier it's, 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 there's no need for it, right? So again, reminders, column one is the payable code. Column two is, of course, the code that is not payable, unless a modifier is permitted. The third column tells you, of course, if that edit was in existence prior to 1996. (laughs) Um, And the fourth column will tell you the effective date. The fifth column tells you the deletion date of the edit. And the sixth column is the modifier permitted. And that's, information you need to know in order to read it appropriately. The booklet from Medicare gives you all of those definitions um, of those modifier indicators. So you know whether or not you can build a modifier with it. So really, really helpful stuff, guys. Really great. Now, I want to talk a little bit about um, encoders because I know that encoders are really popular, right? A lot of people like using their, their encoders. And I like my encoder, I love my encoder, but I don't use it to replace my book, guys. So please, please, please do not use this to replace your book. Really and really important to, to, to know that. Your book um, is official guidelines from the, from the organization that created the codes, right? If so you have your IC10 manual codes created by the CDC, guidelines were, of course, come together from several organizations. Now, the the procedure code book, your CPT code book was, of course, the codes are from AMA. They own that code set. So you're always going to want to have those books. Now, your encoders, like, for instance, your encoder pro, which is what I use, I love encoder pro. It gives me all the information I need when I'm billing, right? Because I have to know how to bill my charges. Uh, I have to know if there is an appropriate diagnosis code. So if I'm educating my physician, I'm looking at the procedure, maybe I'm helping them with an authorization, Right. Maybe I'm helping them try to look up an authorization. I need to know, okay, I need to get this authorized, but these are the codes that are applicable, right? When you look up your code, the first thing you can do is you can go off to the right, you can read if there's an MUE, it tells you how many MUEs are applicable, tells you lots of information. On the, on the left, it tells you the RVUs, and then you have the option to choose national. You can choose um, your local. So make sure you're using, of course, that local RVU, So you can really show that. And it gives you like all the conversion factor, all that information, right? But for me as a coder and I'm reading an op report, I'm looking at the lay terms, guys, because I want to know if I'm really coding this appropriately. So yes, your CPT codebook does have guidelines, but where an encoder is helpful is it has those lay terms, a full description of potentially what the physician would document, what is done during that procedure. So you're looking for common language in your opera report. You're looking for similar things that can be helpful in that instance, right? And then you're going to say, okay, I have this procedure. I coded this right. 19303. I'm going to use my breast codes as an example. Then I'm going back over. I'm going to look up another code. My physician wants to build this other code, right? He wants to do an adjacent tissue transfer, right? I'm going to look up that code, that 1-4 code. I'm going to punch it into my CCI. It gives you like a bunch of boxes, right? You punch in all your codes you're billing on the claim and you click validate, right? You're going to validate that. It's going to tell you these two codes are billable, but you have to have a modifier. So these two codes, you cannot bypass this with a, with a modifier, which means it's mutually exclusive. There's nothing you can do about it. It's part of that RVU value or that payment for the main procedure. And one thing I like to tell my physicians, especially my orthos, which they don't like the shoulder issue, right? For years we had this issue with you can't build two uh, bundled codes on the same shoulder, right? The um, ipsilateral shoulder In the NCCI manual, it uses the word ipsilateral and contralateral. If you don't know what those words mean, it can be difficult to explain that to a physician. Of course, they know what that means, but when you're explaining that to them, you want to sound educated. So ipsilateral means the same side, contralateral is the opposite side, right? So when the NCCI manual removed the wording that described, um, the structures in the shoulder as being, you know, um, the same structure, they took out that wording. It was confusing because, according to a physician, they're not all the same structure, right? So they took out that wording, but they did not take out the fact that you cannot build two procedures on the same shoulder if they're bundled. They took out the confusing language, but what's remained, if you look in 2021, In CCI manual for the shoulders. It says you cannot build two bundled codes um, on the same shoulder. You can't get around it. But what I do educate my physicians on is I just trust me. I know they have given you the correct payment. They value that main code. So say it's a rotator cuff repair. Maybe it's a reconstruction of the rotator cuff. They give you the RV value. That's what they're telling you. They know there are these other minor things, other things you're going to be already in there doing, right? Maybe you're doing it by arthroscopy or you're doing it open. They know you're you're going to have to do um, some of these other things, right? These other procedures at the same time. But you're already in there doing it. They're not going to pay you anymore for doing it while you're in there. Um, that is the criteria they have established. So when we explain that to our physicians, hopefully that's understandable. They've given you, what, 34, 40 for RVUs for this procedure. They know it's a lot of work, and that is valued in that RVU. Maybe the other code maybe has five or six RVUs. So it's a lower, you know, work RVU, total RVU. So they have valued that in the RVU of that main procedure, which is why it's bundled. They're not going to let you bill it. The only time you would bill it, of course, if it was the only thing done, right? You get the value of that. Then we have, of course, we have to understand the separate procedure designation. Do we understand what a separate procedure means? You can only bill it alone. It's part of that main procedure. You're not going to get payment for it. Those are things we have to understand when we read our NCCI manual. Um, so just be aware of that. You know, look at that document from Medicare that we're going to put in our show notes. is really helpful. The encoders also give you great information, um, very similar laid out to what's in your CPT codebook, a lot of the same wording. So you can use it um, as a guide. Let's say you don't have a new codebook. Your employer is not going to pay for them. That's one thing. Maybe you have to buy them yourselves. I'm a firm believer. I want to have my physical book in front of me. Or an ebook, for instance, maybe they'll pay for an ebook. Um, but definitely, definitely have a copy as a coder, whether you pay for it yourself um, or your employer pays for it. Have a physical book so you can have that handy, right? Uh, encoders are helpful, they do not replace our books, especially for ICD 10. Now, I am an educator for risk adjustment, so I'm a firm believer you cannot fully get to the accurate code information on an encoder. You may be able to search for something to get a starting point, right? Maybe for looking up a denial or something. But to code from a report, to get to the right code, you need to follow the roadmap. Like I always say, you need to go from your index to your tabular. Now, my good friend, Sherry Poe Bernard, shout out to Sherry, my favorite people who teaches risk adjustment, and he literally wrote the book on risk adjustment. We use her manual in our coding course, and I want you to know um, she always says, and she gives examples when she teaches or speaks publicly, there are specific examples where you cannot get to the tabular correctly without going to the index. There are some that will take you elsewhere when it's not completely accurate. And in our recent Q&A with my, uh, when I was training the hospital staff, we were, of course, discussing this together as a group. And a lot of us discovered some of these examples on our for ourselves. We were looking up you know, specific documentation that they were having and we were looking up um, specific codes and then we encountered this. We encountered that there were some um, descriptions in the in the notes um, in the assessment we had to look up. And if we hadn't gone to the index and then gone to the tabular and the right area, we would not have got the right code. So it is very important that we have books. Now, there are ways in your encoders that you can actually look up your index, right? So use that. Um, Don't just type in the description. Go to the actual lookup in your encoder where you can actually do the drop down and click on the word and the index and and find where it tells you to go. As long as you can get there, then that's appropriate and that's, of course, applicable. So I hope this was helpful. Of course, I talked about the NCCI manual. I talked about, of course, um, prior authorizations, denial codes. I talked about um, the EOB. And so I hope this was information that you can take back to your practices or if you are listening at your practice, which I've discovered a lot of you are doing. So thank you. We just hit 5,000 downloads. I am so excited. I started this journey back in 2020 when, of course, the COVID was happening. I had broken my ankle. Nothing to do. I was laid up. I'm like, what am I going to do with myself? I'm like, oh am going start a podcast. So I did that, and it's been a great journey. Um, it's turned into something that I really love doing and love sharing with people. So when I get those messages that my entire office listens to your podcast, we love it. I listen to your, your, this episode over and over again because I love it so much. That's the th- stuff I love to hear. Now, I had a question um, from a listener. So let's start our Q&A, guys. I'm going to actually answer a QA and a that was, of course, sent in a voicemail to me. And it was an interesting question because sometimes we know we have the global surgery, right? So a patient sees a physician in one area, maybe they've moved or another physician is the one that maybe took out the suture. And so it was a question about that. So just be aware that when it comes to um, the suture removal, that um, that is, of course, unless the physician removing the suture was not the same physician that put it in, that did the surgery it's bundled into the global. But if you're the other physician, let's say you're the post-operative physician, somebody else did the surgery, they are the surgery only physician, the 54 modifier person, and you are the post-operative, right? So you need to know 54 modifier, right? Means surgical care only. And 55 is post-operative only. And of course, 56 is pre-operative only, right? And that can happen sometimes, but usually we see 54 and 55 being used. But a word of caution, is that these modifiers are not applicable unless there is coordination. So if a doctor in Springfield, Missouri, this happened once, I'm just an example, sees a patient as a surgery, they come to Northwest Arkansas where I am, this happened to me, and we see the patient for post-operative care, we didn't know they already built their claim with a full code without the modifier. We can't do anything about it. I mean, the only thing they really do is to have that physician rebuild the claim with the right modifier. Not many will do that for you. They've already got their payment. They're not going to rebuild it and risk it in a lower payment. So your only recourse is to bill an EM and code for your service because you saw the patient, you did something for them. Your course still have to document enough of um, you know, what you can to get a low-level Just make sure you at least have something in your MDM to justify a 99212, right? Uh, or I'm sorry, 99202 because it's new to you. Now, if you're the same specialty, of course, it's probably going to hit an edit that you can't bill a new patient because maybe they're the same specialty. But if you're not the same specialty, maybe you're a different physician doing it, removing it, then that's a different story, right? But just be aware of those things. You have to have that coordination of care. Otherwise, there's no modifier needed. And another thing to keep in mind, too, is that you also need to look at your payer. There are some payers that don't recognize those modifiers, so even if you're trying to um, do that, you're not going to be able to do that. So it's basically a situation. They got paid for the surgery. Um, you know, they they got paid for the post-op too, but you're doing post-op. All you can bill for is just seeing that patient um, outside of that. You know, you're not going to have to worry about global because you weren't the one billing the surgery. So it's not going to apply to you. You can still get reimbursed for your E&M service because you are not um, in the same practice. You're not in the same, you know. Um, the specialty or subspecialty, it's not going to be on the same tax ID. It's going to be completely different. So you're going to be able to get reimbursed for that. So you see them maybe three, four, five, six times. You're going to be able to bill an e and every time you see them because you're not the one that did the surgery. So just be aware of that. No modifier. The only time you would do that is, of course, if you had to coordinate that with that physician. It was a coordination of care. Make sure that you look at all those things. And I had another question from somebody who wouldn't know when we're going to do a pediatric um, episode, um, or do some pediatric content. And so if you've been listening, hopefully you've been listening, and that in next month, we are going to do a high level pediatric webinar, um, talking about from um, immunizations to trauma to all kinds of things. So stay tuned for that webinar, Um we'll be advertising for that uh, on our website. Uh, and then also keep in mind that our pediatric coding summit is going to be in uh, May, May 7th. And the amazing Rhonda Buckholes is our keynote speaker for compliance. So definitely check that out. We have Betty Hovey that's coming um, to that conference to talk about evaluation management and ICD 10 for pediatrics. Um, and I will be covering um, some items too, as well on um, immunizations. And then, of course, um, we have Jessica Miller who's going to talk about NICU and other pediatric procedures. So, definitely don't want to miss that conference. It will have CEUs. It's virtual, guys, so you don't have to leave your home. I know we're getting burnt out on virtual sometimes, but for those of you that still need that option, you can't travel to HealthCon, you can't travel to the other conferences, you need that pediatric education. Tell your practices, tell your managers. It's a really great way. Uh, to have the office get that education they need without having to pay for travel, having to pay these large amounts for um, going to these big conferences. If you just need pediatrics, if you just need cardiovascular or you just need oncology, because we have all of these planned this year. Um, So take advantage of these virtual conferences because it's really a great way for you to see um, high level speakers from around the country from the, the comfort of your home or from your office. So If you're attending a two-day conference, you're there at the office Friday, the office wants to listen in, hey, great. Um, And each individual coder um, can purchase a ticket so that you can get CEUs. Um, We'll be offering 8 to 10 CEUs per conference, so um, stay tuned for um, more information as it comes out. But please, please, please join our pediatric conference. Our next one, of course, is fast approaching. We have OBGYN conference coming um, on February 12th. Um, we have Shannon DeConda, our compliance expert. I love Shannon, the president of NAMIS and doctors management. So we love them. And of course, we have Betty Hovey again doing our EM. and we have, of course, Arlene Smith, one of my favorite speakers when it comes to OBGYN. She is a, you know, an expert in that field. Um, I'll be talking about OBGYN or the maternity services uh, for PCS. So for you hospital coders who have a little bit of um, interest in learning um, or refreshing or brushing up on your PCS coding. I'll be talking about just the basics of that, how to understand the structure. If you're getting, taking your CCS exam and you want to learn more about the um, ob and maternity services for the hospital, um, for those stay tuned for that. And of course my girl, Kimberly Jolivet Williams will be talking to us about uh, the maternity anesthesia uh, billing. So great, great stuff coming at you guys. You don't want to miss these conferences. They are going to be amazing. So we'll have the show notes. We'll have our link to those conferences in our show notes um, so that you can sign up um, before we sell out. So and I hope that we have a great year and that you continue to come back uh, to the Life as a Coder podcast for all of your education. And don't forget, you can earn CEUs for this bonus episode if you are an all access or VIP member. So jump on over to www.patreon.com slash life as a coder and sign up for our membership levels. So if you are our second and third tier members, you do get two episodes a month with the CEU. And if you're a VIP member, you get three um, CEUs a month. One of is a webinar on our site. So remember that you get that as a VIP member. And, of course, if you just want to be the basic member, that's great. We'd love to have you. So please join us. You get one CE, one episode a month with the CEU. This episode today, though, keep in mind, it is just for our all-access or our bonus um, episode or our VIP members. So if you want a CE for this episode, please, please, please go to our Patreon site and sign up for the membership. It's a great, great option. Well, I want to thank you for listening today. It is always our goal to inspire and educate. And as I always say, knowledge is power. Do not give up on the coding. The knowledge you gain today makes you powerful tomorrow. Whether you're a coder, a biller, an office manager, a physician, we thank you for listening today. And we hope that what we offer, what we can give you will help you grow your practice and be successful and uh, show the money, right? That's what we want to we give you. So we hope that you've, of course, enjoyed this um, episode. And I want to thank a special shout out to my podcast producer, Gabriel Fast with Highland Productions. Until next time. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Life as a Coder podcast series brought to you by your friends at Ozark Coding Alliance. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate that effort. It helps us share the show with other coders, students, and professionals just like you. Come back every Wednesday for a new episode. We'll catch you then.